Hello and welcome to another podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. Raghuram Rajan, the former chief economist for the IMF, might be forgiven for currently reveling in a sense of quiet satisfaction after his experience in the hands of some top economists. In 2005, two years before the global financial meltdown, he gave a keynote speech at the annual retreat of the world's central bankers, held in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That year, the meeting was also a celebration of Alan Greenspan, who was about to retire as chairman of the Federal Reserve after presiding over an historic period of economic growth. In his speech, Mr Rajan addressed the question of whether financial development had made the world riskier. His conclusion? Yes. That speech earned him verbal attacks and considerable derision from some of his fellow economists. Mr Rajan, now a professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, has written a book about what he sees as the roots of the crisis. And earlier I spoke to him about the thinking behind that book. But first, back to that infamous gathering at Jackson Hole. It was Alan Greenspan's last meeting as Federal Reserve Board Chairman. And uh, the conference was in many ways a celebration of his term at the Fed. And I was asked to write a paper on the financial sector. And of course, there had been many advances in the financial sector over his term. And as I started writing the paper with the help of my staff uh, in research, I was the chief economist at the uh, International Monetary Fund then, you know, some facts started coming up which were a little disconcerting. Uh, For example, the fact that despite all the securitization and the laying off of risk that was happening in the financial sector, it didn't seem that banks were getting any safer. In fact, if anything, the riskiness of banks seemed to be going up a little. At any rate, um, some central bankers thought I was pointing to legitimate concerns. The bigger uh, sort of reaction came from some bankers who basically, either because I seemed to be raining on Greenspan's parade, or because I think uh, there was a sense of of comfort that central bankers had had learned the tools of what needed to be done and had, had dealt with part past crises. The reaction from them was to minimize these concerns. You must feel vindicated now, but in retrospect, given what's happened and the depth of the financial crisis, do you regret not making a larger song and dance about it? More of fuss? Well, let me put it this way. I uh, added two and two and I thought it made four. But uh, I wasn't necessarily sure of the math. And uh, when you're not so sure of the math, uh, you can warn, but you don't pound your fist on the table and say, you know, this is going to happen, come what may, let's uh, clear the decks. And I don't think that the crisis was so inevitable. I think that there were conditions in place for, the, for a potential crisis, but a whole bunch of things came together to actually push it over the edge. So are you saying that in 2005, if people had heeded your warning, if, if the regulations, financial regulations had been tightened up, if consumers had started draining back, maybe we wouldn't have had the depth of this crisis at least, or the crisis at all in 2007? Uh, uh, yes, uh, if all that had happened, but it would have taken an enormous change in public mood for that to happen. If you think about the excesses in the subprime mortgages, for example, Many of the 
most awful loans were written in 2006 and 2007. In part, they looked really awful because the house price increase which supported them was coming to an end. I think that if everything had come to a sudden stop in 2005, maybe we wouldn't have had such a terrible crisis. But think of what would have needed to happen for everything to come to a sudden stop. You needed a revolutionary change in the hearts and minds of regulators, of politicians, of the general public. The whole point of my book is to say that perhaps I underestimated the forces that were for the kind of conditions that I saw and I worried about. I thought it was a few regulators and a few bankers. But in fact, I think the societal forces that I missed were very strong. So you're saying that you yourself underestimated the fault lines, to mention the title of your book, that existed in society. For those who haven't had the good fortune to be able to access your book, could you just give a very brief a resume of the thesis behind your book? Well, uh, the thesis is, is really to say, look, we've got to get beyond uh, pointing the finger at greedy bankers and, uh, and uh, you know, regulators without backbone. I argue that in the last 20 years, growing inequality in the United States, largely uh, due to things like education, has created a dispersion both in incomes as well as in opportunities. Now, when you have a person who's got barely a high school education, uh, who's seeing you know, his income stagnate if not fall, uh, what do you tell him? I think the right thing would be we need to get you more skills and more education. But when he's got two kids working two jobs, it's very hard for him to go out and get that, those skills and education. And I think the easy solution in the United States, as at other times in other countries, was to push credit. If uh, this person could go get a loan, buy a house, and house prices grew, and he borrowed against the house through home equity loans, one, he felt wealthier because he owned an asset which was growing in price. He had a stake in the future. Assets always give you that. And uh, he could support a lifestyle, consumption, even though his income was stagnant. So housing, expanded housing, was in many ways a solution which allowed one to forget about the deeper underlying problem, which was stagnant incomes. You come up with some incredible figures, not least the which is from the 30 years on, from around 1976, 58 cents of every dollar in real income growth went to 1% of the population. Presumably that hasn't changed very much, so the underlying fault line is still there. It's there. If you look at 2002 to 2008, you look at which professions have done well, which haven't done well, uh, same pattern exhibits itself. In fact, there's an interesting aspect to the people who are making it in the United States today. Increasingly, over the last 30 years, it's the working rich as opposed to the idle rich. It used to be the idle rich, guys who inherited their wealth and were living uh, really luxurious lifestyles as a result. Now it's self-made people. It's your uh, consultant, lawyer. It's your entrepreneur. These are the guys who have tons of money. Of course, there's old wealth still. This dispersion in incomes is as a result of skills uh, that have been acquired. And as a result, the working rich are very hesitant to have their money, very angry when their money is taken away and given to the others. Because they say, you know, we didn't inherit this wealth, we work for it. The whole issue in America has been, can the rest have access to that kind of income? 
And I argue that what's changed is when you didn't need an education, when you could be a Commodore Vanderbilt without an edu- much of an education and you could build this empire, that, that was a place where everybody was comfortable with the very rich because I can get there. Now increasingly there's a sense I cannot get there because I didn't get the education. I didn't go to Ivy League schools and I cannot you know, uh, participate in, in the opportunities that are being created. That I think is particularly worrisome because then it creates a division in society. If I can't be where that guy is, then I resent where he is. Can I ask you about another societal uh, fault line that you identified, which is the consumer here in the US, the fact that they were on a huge credit binge. Now that they've undergone this credit crunch and, and financial slump, do you see any fundamental change in their behavior? Well, I, I, I think willy-nilly, uh, it's being forced on some of them. Others are, are cutting back voluntarily. But you do see uh, a number of areas in the U.S. And, and, I mean, you can see this recovery is a two-tier recovery in the U.S. Areas which didn't take on so much debt, uh, where house prices didn't blow up so much and didn't collapse so much, are areas which are now doing quite well. Texas, for example. While other areas which went on this borrowing binge, uh, where house prices shot up and then collapsed, these are areas which are not doing well at all. Uh, where employment is not picking up, uh, consumption has not picked up, auto sales are stagnant. So the U.S. is emerging from this recession as even more of a two-tier economy. Uh, And this goes back to my point that credit was an attempt at redistribution, and it failed miserably. We will have further attempts at redistribution. I think we do have to figure out how to bring up Uh, the rest of the population, which is falling behind, without necessarily focusing only on consumption, but instead focusing on incomes. How to make them capable of earning uh, a higher wage, a better wage, a wage that allows them to benefit from the opportunities in in this economy and their children to benefit.